smiling faces. Good to see those who are here with us, and welcome to those who are online with us as well. Uh, if you're a guest today, my name is Ben. I want to introduce myself, lead pastor here. So glad you could be with us. If you want to grab your Bibles, we're going to be in Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9, as we continue our series for Advent. Isaiah chapter 9, we're going to look at verses 1 through 7. 1 through 7. If you get there, say amen. Heard a few holdups. Isaiah chapter 9, 1 through 7. Hear the reading of God's word. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you, as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken, as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and uphold, and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Amen. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I want to tag our text today, With Us in Grief. With Us in Grief. Let's pray before we jump in. Father, thank you for your word today. Thank you that we could gather together as your people in various stages of life. Some of us are coming full of gladness. Some of us are coming full of grief. And everyone is somewhere in between. And God, we pray, Lord, that you would speak to us by your spirit today. Open up your word to our hearts and our minds, wherever we find ourselves, knowing that you are with us, just as we sung, that we are not alone. But you are the God who pursues us. You're the God who chases us down to come be with us wherever we may be. And so, Lord, I pray as you speak to us in your word, you would transform us to the image of your Son, your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. My wife and I, uh, we take turns. We alternate uh, taking our daughters out on date nights. It's kind of a thing we've done the last few years as our daughters are getting a little bit older and, and trying to get one-on-one -on -one time, just real simple dates. And a few weeks ago, it was my turn to take our daughter, Sophia, on a date. And just, just the two of us, I ask her, anywhere you want to go, you pick. It's your, your pick this time. And she picks McDonald's. 
I mean, you talk about romantic, cheap date, but for a six-year-old, like, she was so excited that she got to choose McDonald's because she had heard a few days before that from her friend at school that they had a new toy in the Happy Meal. I don't even know what it was. It was some kind of Disney character, and, and she had heard about it, so she jumped at the opportunity to get her toy from the Happy Meal. And so I say, all right, well, you know, you can go get on something nice and you can dress up because they like to dress up when they go on these dates. And she gets dressed up nicely. We drive over to McDonald's and we sit down and actually we go up to the counter and we order and she orders for herself. She tells the man at the counter that she wants a Happy Meal cheeseburger with fries, please. She was so polite. I was like, who is this child with me on this date? Um, But I think it was the toy. She was so excited about the toy. So we sit down, we're waiting for our food. And uh, there weren't very many people there, so the guy behind the counter, he brought us our food. He was so nice. And we're sitting there and uh, start our conversation. And if you sit down with a six-year-old and it's just one-on-one, there's no distractions, you just hear the wonder in their life. Like everything is exciting to them. Everything. We're talking about friends. We're talking about the teacher, the school. We're talking about, you know, the, the latest TV show she watched. And then kind of out of the blue, she looks at her meal and she asks me, Daddy, why is it called a Happy Meal? And I said, well, I, I don't know, sweetie. I, I, I would guess because they're hoping that it makes you happy when you eat it. And she said, well, let me tell you, it is working. <laughs> I, I, I am feeling really happy. And it was just the, the sweetest moment where she was so kind and so full of joy. And it made me think, I mean, isn't that what we all want? We, we just want to be happy. I mean, happy is, is easy, right? It's simple. It's, it's not complicated. It's, it's something that just kind of comes naturally when you're in the moment, right? No one has to force you to be happy. No one has to hold your hand and teach you how to be happy. It, when you're happy, it just, it just feels right. It feels like this, this is something that, that should be all the time, right? And, and when we live in this culture where it's it's happy meal culture, it's happy endings, it's happy faces. I mean, especially when you're church people, right? You go to church and, and everybody's smiling, everybody looks their best on Sunday, everybody acts as if everything was great the last six days, and, and we kind of have this tendency to focus on the happy. And, and we really, we know how to do happy because happy is easy, but how do you do sad? I mean, how, how do you do sad, especially in the church? I mean, we don't know how to do grief and loss. And so sadness can catch us by surprise because we're not prepared, we're not equipped for it. And then when it happens, because it will happen, it comes upon you, you're not ready. And so when we're not ready, we can get crushed by it, we can try to avoid it, we'll, we'll try to stuff it or put it off to another time, but we don't really want to deal with it because we don't know what to do with sadness? What do we do with grief and loss? I mean, what, what do you do? What, what is your way of doing sadness? I find it interesting that, that in the book of Isaiah, when, when Jesus is spoken about by the prophet Isaiah in chapter 53, he says that Jesus, this one to come, will be a man of sorrows. He says he's, a, he's acquainted with grief. In other words... If that means anything at all, it means that Jesus isn't always happy. That, that he wasn't always smiling. I mean, Jesus was the type of guy who, he knew how to do happiness, but he knew how to do sadness. 
He grieved over losses. He grieved over death. He, he grieved over the pain of, of somebody he cared about suffering. And, and so he, he knew how to do the hard things. He wasn't kind of one layer type of person. He, he knew how to do loneliness. He knew how to do fullness. He knew how to, to see and feel the whole range of emotions and not be crushed by it. It's pretty incredible. In fact, he didn't neglect it, nor, nor was he crushed by it. But, but what's the most amazing to me is, is he actually engaged God in it. He, he's able to find hope in God in the midst of his grief and loss. And that's what this text brings out. What's incredible here is we're, we're continuing this Advent series. We're calling it God With Us because we've been walking in the fall through the book of Isaiah. Now we're kind of lapping back to the beginning and we're looking at some of the prophecies that are specific in Isaiah to Jesus' birth. And what we see is there's this theme that when, when God speaks of his, his Messiah who's to come, he, he calls him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And what he's saying is, in the midst of your deepest pain, I'm going to make this promise my presence. And he gives various ways that that presence is going to transform us. And so last week, John looked at, at how God being with us in our fear is, is, good, uh, for, is good news to us. And now this week, we're going to look at how God is with us in our grief, in our loss, in our sadness. And so I want to look at this text asking the question, how does the gospel give us hope for that grief? How does it give us hope for our grief. Let's look first at the gloomy darkness. If you're taking notes, the gloomy darkness. Look at verse 1. He says this, but there will be no gloom for who or for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Now, Isaiah is writing this chapter, chapter 9, in, in kind of the beginning stages of the darkness. So scholars believe that this is written speaking about the time that the invasion from the, the Assyrian kingdom is coming into the north. And so it's somewhere around the time 733 B.C. And so uh, we know from history that in 722 is when the northern kingdom fell. So there's this, kind of this in-between time where now they've invaded, they've started taking over their land, they've started taking their homes, they've started separating families, they've set up their rule and their reign, their oppressive reign over these people. All of that has kind of begun, and it's very fresh. But they're still kind of holding on to, maybe this isn't really going to happen, maybe it'll get better, but it seems like this is terrible. They're, they're in, that, in that tearing uh, season, right, where, where you can feel the loss coming and it's already kind of begun. And so here is where we see what, what he describes in chapter 8. He says the people are going to enter into gloom, and what he says is a thick darkness. But now chapter 9 makes a turn. And chapter 9 kind of gives this, this hint that there's hope coming. There, this hint that, that there might be a transformation, but, but uh, you got to watch what's happening. He says there's going to be a former time, and then there's going to be a latter time. And we're going to get to that in a second. But before he gets to that, notice that, that he doesn't look over their grief. He, he doesn't uh, neglect to acknowledge that, that what they're going through right now is what he calls anguish. 
He says it's so terrible. He calls it a condition of contempt. And this, this Hebrew word contempt, it literally means to be lowered from loss. In other words, you, you were in a high place, you were doing well, life was going well, and then something crushed you, and now you've moved from up here to down here, and you're grieving in that loss. You, you've literally flipped your whole life. Everything is different. You've gone from glory to shame. You've gone from light to, as he says, darkness. And grief is the process of, of, of processing that pain, that, that loss that you've just encountered. There was a man named Nicholas uh, Wolterstorff who uh, heard the last words of his son uh, right before uh, he passed away. And, he, and these were the words. He, his son said to him, I can't wait to get back to the mountains again. His son, Eric, was... Uh, he was this adventurous kid who, who was always looking for something to, to you know, get his excitement up and, and something that would be outrageous and crazy, and so he loved mountain climbing. And he was this fun, loving, enjoyable guy who loved God and, and loved to serve his community, and then he was suddenly gone. Mr. Wolterstorff, he, he remembers the day like it was yesterday. He said it was a Sunday afternoon, 3.30 in the afternoon. I get a call, and the voice on the other end said, is this Eric's father? And he confirmed and he said, uh, well, sir, I, I have some really bad news to let you know that your son Eric has been climbing in the mountains and he's had an accident. And sir, I don't know how to say this, but Eric is dead. Eric is dead. And he said, I remember hearing those words come out of the phone and I remember this three seconds, just three seconds of surreal peace and then this cold burning pain that I didn't know how to handle. And he said this, he, he said, I started to uh, lament and, and write down my thoughts and trying to process all these things that I was feeling because this man was a well-known professor at Yale University. He was considered by many to be this expert in the field of pain and suffering, and now it was him personally. And he wrote down his thoughts and later published them, and it's called Lament for a Son. It's a fantastic book, just gets into the heart of what what you feel in this kind of moment. And listen to a few words that he, he shares from his laments. He says, Eric is gone. Here and now, he is gone. Now I cannot talk with him. Now I cannot see him. Now I cannot hug him. Now I cannot hear of his plans for the future. That is my sorrow. How is faith to endure, O God, when you allow all this scraping and tearing on us? You've allowed mountains of suffering to pile up, all without lifting a finger that we could see. If you haven't abandoned us, please explain yourself. I mean, for some of us in the room, that, that might make you a little uncomfortable. I mean, his lament is raw, it's real. But, but listen to what he's saying. Listen to what he's wrestling with. He, he's pushing us, and the scriptures are pushing us to say, we don't deny the darkness, the reality of the pain, but we engage it. And we engage it through this tool that God has given us called lament. It's an, it's an incredible thing that lament is focusing our heart on God in the midst of the hurt. See, this is the key difference between lamenting and grumbling. Because anybody can grumble. Grumbling is complaining without faith. It's saying that, God, you either weren't good enough or you weren't strong enough. 
You weren't good enough because you didn't care about me when I was suffering. You didn't care about that this is what I was going through. You, you clearly didn't uh, show any concern as I was walking through this and this, but he could also be not strong enough, right? You care, but you, you, don't, you can't do anything for me. You, you talk a big game, God, but you don't show up to deliver me. Do you hear that? It, it's complaining without faith. Lament is different. Lament is complaining with faith. Lament is saying, God, I, I, I don't understand what you're doing. I, I don't know why you're doing it this way. And it makes me really angry and frustrated and I'm confused, but, but I'm going to bring my pain to you. Right? I mean, grumbling is accusing God from a distance, but, but lament brings it right up into his lap. And says, God, I, I don't know what, what you're doing, but I'm going to come be in your presence with this confusion, with this pain, and cast it upon you. I'm going to cast my cares upon you because I do believe that you care for me, even if I can't see it. Do you hear that? That's what it means to grieve. This is this godly grief that the scriptures talk about. And listen, your, your grief is going to be unique to you and what that lament looks like. I was talking to my counselor recently about this and just processing my own grief and, and what that's looked like lately in this last two years, really. And uh, he gave me this incredible image that stuck with me. He said, grief is kind of like uh, when you were a kid and you go to the doctor for your checkup and they sit you up on the little chair and, and he, he asks if you can uh, you know, stick your leg forward and, and he knocks your leg or, or your knee with, with the little mallet and your knee just kind of pops up, right? And he's doing that to check to see if, if your knee is healthy. Because if your knee is healthy, it's going to pop up. It's going to be the natural reaction of a healthy knee. And he said grief is like that. Grief, grief is just the natural reaction of a heart that's working through pain. It's not something that, that says there's something wrong with me. It's actually something that says there's something right with me, that, that I'm human, that there's something I'm, I'm responding to that I've lost and I've loved, and, and it may be a person, it may be a thing, it may be an experience, whatever it is, but, but I've lost something that was really meaningful to me, and it's going to cause things to come out of me. And it could be all kinds of things, right? It, it could be anger, it could be silence, it can be fear. It can be even laughter. Right? There, there are different ways that we grieve, and there's different lengths that we grieve. There's different uh, emotions that we experience as we grieve. But whatever it is, it, it will come out of you because it's showing that your heart is wrestling with something that you love, that you care about. It's your heart working. And grief is this season of waiting on God in that time. I mean, that's what Advent's all about. It's all about waiting. Waiting for God in the darkness. Waiting for God in the pain. Waiting for God in the loss. Waiting for God to show up when we don't have answers, when we don't have understanding, when we don't have our own way out. And so lament is this art of, of waiting on God and sharing with Him while you wait. It's sharing your burden, sharing your care, sharing your anger, bringing it to him to say, God, this, this was meaningful. What do you need to lament? What, what are you grieving? The holiday season can be something, I mean, it, this time can be something that brings out more grief because you remember. 
You remember people you love. You remember experiences you've had. You remember hurtful, deep wounds. All these things kind of come to the surface. And this, this is a season, it may seem strange as we call it a season of joy and, and celebration, but it's also a season that we lament. That, that a healthy heart is able to share those things with God. And when we bring it in this gloomy darkness, God shines a light. And this is what Isaiah says. Look, look at verse 2. He says this. He says, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. Isaiah paints this beautiful picture of a great reversal. He says in chapter 8, it was this gloomy darkness, this thick darkness. And now in chapter 9, there's a complete reversal, right? And he says this, this reversal is marked by this characteristic joy. And he says it four times in just one verse about their new joy. He says their joy is increased, that they rejoice, that there's joy like the harvest, that they're glad, right? Over and over in just one verse, he says there's this explosion of joy. And it seems radically different because just a few verses before, there was this dark, deep, gloomy uh, pain that they're experiencing. So what caused this radical reversal? He says it's God's victory. It's God's victory in verse 4, and he says the victory is going to be like the day of Midian. Now, what in the world is he talking about, the day of Midian? I want you to consider, go all the way back to Judges 7 with me. It was the day of Midian. It was the day that the Midianites were coming against Israel and they were oppressing Israel for a season, right? They would come in and they would steal all their crops and their food and, and take it all back to their place and they would come in and just do that over and over. And finally, God calls Gideon to deliver Israel from this oppressive uh, treatment that was happening by the Midianites. And Gideon says, well, I'm not your guy. I, I'm, I'm from the weakest tribe. I'm the, I'm the smallest dude. I don't know what you're talking about, how I'm going to lead the people against the Midianites. And of course, that didn't stop God from calling Gideon. God said, well, no, you're, you're still going to do the job. And so Gideon's like, all right, I'll do the job. And so he, he starts to put together this makeshift army. And then they find out the Assyrians are coming again with this massive army. I mean, you're talking thousands and thousands and thousands and and Gideon's looking over at his people, and he says, we don't have enough people. And God says, no, actually, you have too many people. He says, you, you have 32,000. I'm going to need you to bump that down to about 10,000. And Gideon's like, what? You're going to give me less people? And then God says, you know what? Actually, I think that's still too many people. Let's go from 10,000 to 300. And so now the Bible says it's 135,000 against 300. And God says, now I've got you exactly where I want you. Because if I win this battle, you'll never think it was you. You'll know that if I win, it was me. And God ends up winning the battle, defeating the Midianites through their weakness. And this is what Isaiah says. Isaiah says, when God wins the battle, when he wins the victory that will be the final victory, it's going to be like the day of Midian. It's going to be like the day where you had no chance, you had no strength, you had no ability in yourself, but God is going to come in and he's going to win the victory because of him. It's going to be through your weakness and his strength. 
But look at what he says. Go back to the Bible in Isaiah. It, look at this. All the verbs, all the verbs are in the past tense. It's, and actually in Hebrew, it's the, it's the perfect tense. Now you might be saying, Pastor, what, why are you telling us about grammar? This, this is important. It may not seem important, but the, the perfect tense is, is in Hebrew grammar, it's basically a past tense event that, that's been completed, but it has a present effect. You know what I'm saying? And so he, he's writing what's going to happen in the future as if it's already happened. And he's writing it as if it's already been completed. And it has present effects. In other words, he's affirming that this hope, this victory that he's going to bring about is present that part of, it's, it's part of their now. So in the midst of their darkness, in the midst of their grief, in the midst of the loss, he's saying you have an unshakable future. Yeah. You have something that, that is so secure, I'm going to write it as if it's already happened. See, hope, this, listen, hope grieves the present while it's grounded in the future. It, it grieves. It, it, it has the freedom to grieve the present, but but it's grounded in the future. See, the darkness is true, but it, it's not the whole truth. It's not the whole truth. There, there's two dangers with darkness. The first danger is you can live in denial, right? You, you can live as if it's really not that bad. I mean, I really didn't love them that much. I, I really don't miss that. I, I really, like, you try to convince yourself somehow it's not really that bad, and you try to live like you're going to name it and claim it. Like, I'm, I'm going to name it and claim it that I feel good, and praise God, I'm too blessed to be stressed, right? You're going to live that way because you're trying to deny the reality of the darkness in the name of hope, and that's not biblical hope. It's denial. But it's also just as dangerous on the other side to live in despair, right? Where, where despair is, the darkness is real, but it, it's overcoming everything in my life. The darkness now redefines my existence. It, it is who I am. I'm, I'm no longer a person of hope. I'm, I'm just a person that, that lives in, in the shadows all the time. Both are dangerous. Both can crush you. But listen... Hope is different. Hope lives between the, the promise and the reality. Hope believes that God, what, what God says despite what I see. Hope believes that God works through weakness, through loss, through pain, through grief, because that's the way He works. And, and so we're, we're able to, uh, to grieve our weakness. We're able to grieve our loss. We're able to grieve our inability to change things. And yet, at the same time, not let go of God. Do you hear that? Because when we look at the darkness and we have hope, we know whether the darkness is in us or whether the darkness is in something else, we know that that's not where our hope comes from. That our hope is not whether the darkness changes. Our hope is not whether we feel better at the end of it. The, the hope is not what we experience, but the hope is the promise of God. Amen. And so we can grieve that divorce and not be consumed with despair. We can grieve the pandemic and not despair. We can grieve our own sin and not despair. We can grieve injustice and not despair because our God is able. He's able. In fact, we, we can engage the battle for hope. And, and listen, it is a battle for hope. We can engage it knowing we're already victorious. We're already. Our hope is secure. Notice all the activity, again, is on God's side. 
He's the one who fights for us. He's the one who defeats every enemy. He's the one who brings life out of death. It's so secure that God wrote it in the past tense. He wrote your victory as if it's already happened. He wrote your restoration as if it's a done deal. Because he doesn't need your strength. He needs your weakness. He needs your weakness. And it's it's in that weakness that God brings out this greatest promise, this gift. And this is the last point, a given son. Look at verse 6. Look at what he says. It's incredible. He says, for to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now this is the third mention of the child in just the last three chapters of Isaiah. In chapter 7, the child was the one they were to trust. And, and, and it was a sign to trust in God. In chapter 8, the child was the one who was actually a sign of judgment and that disaster was coming. And now in chapter 9, out of their failure, out of their rebellion against God, out of the darkness, God is saying, I'm going to bring victory and hope. And so you see this, this radical transformation. One scholar captured it this way. He said, God's answer to everything that's ever terrorized us in life is a child. A child, a child that will overcome all darkness, a child that will overcome all suffering, a child that will overcome all sin. How, how in the world does this make sense? It's that irony. It's the utter weakness that God uses to win the battle. This is what he's saying, because this is not just any child. He, he's the divine child. He's the king child. And so he says, notice, the moment he's born, he's already victorious. That's how he speaks of him. He says he's going to be called a wonderful counselor, which, which is referring in the Hebrew to a king's ability to strategize for victory. Now, that's the kind of counsel it's talking about. And then he says he's going to be a mighty God. So not only does he have the strategy, but he has the strength to do it. And then he's going to be called an everlasting father whose victory in the battle is going to bring about a whole new family that lives on for eternity. And then he's called a prince of peace who brings life and wholeness out of every loss and brokenness. This is his name. The essence of who he is. Jesus. This child who would be born. And when Jesus comes, this is what's fascinating. When Jesus arrives in Galilee in Matthew chapter 4, it quotes Isaiah 9. This very verse, Matthew chapter 4, says, Beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them has a light dawned. Jesus, as he's beginning his ministry, he walks into Galilee, coming right out of the the desert and and, and entering into his, his life that's going to transform the world. The first thing that's said about him is a light has dawned in Galilee. Because Galilee was the place that the Assyrian invasion began. Galilee was where their hurt began. Galilee was where their loss began. Galilee was where their grief was starting to overwhelm them. And God says, in that very place where you experienced all that pain, that's where I'm going to shine my light. I'm going to shine it right there. And it's going to overcome the darkness because my presence, my very son will be with you. 
See, God's healing for grief, it, it, it's the gift of himself. That's how he heals our grief. It, it's the gift of himself. On September 1st, uh, 1939, uh, the Nazi troops invaded Poland, and there was a 15-year-old girl named Gerda Weissman who uh, was in, in, her, in her family unit trying to hide, and, and they were able to survive uh, kind of living in this Jewish hideout for almost three years, really. And then about three years in to their hiding, they, they got found and, and they got separated, and her family members went to different concentration camps. And she went to one where she would spend three years living in a concentration camp. And she would just see horrendous things and experience torture and all the, the horrible things that you could imagine. And somehow, miraculously, she survived. And when they came and they raided the place and they found her, uh, they, they rescued her and she was only 68 pounds. A skeleton, a shell of who she was when she went in. And if you go to the, the Holocaust Museum in Boston, Massachusetts, if you go, you'll see there's actually six towers and, and the six towers commemorate the six camps where millions of people lost their lives. And, and the first five towers actually are, are uh, kind of giving homage to the suffering and the pain that was done and, and memorializing that. And then the sixth tower is a testament to hope. And on the sixth tower, there's actually a short story that's inscribed on the tower, and it's written by none other than Gerda Weissman. And it's called One Raspberry. And it's just a few sentences. I want to read it to you. It says, A childhood friend of mine once found a raspberry in the camp and carried it in her pocket all day to present to me that night on a leaf. Imagine a world in which your only possession is one raspberry and you gave it away to your friend. Imagine a world where your only possession in all of life is one raspberry and you gave it away to your friend. What she's saying is, is the true measure of a gift is, is what you have to give up to give it. And when God gives the gift of his presence, listen, when God gives the gift of a child born to us, when God gives the gift of his own son, when he gives up everything that he has, to shine light into our darkness, the darkness of our sin, the darkness of our suffering, how immeasurable a gift it really is. God shines brightest on the darkest day, right? We see a wonderful counselor grieving in our place. We see a mighty God restrained with nails in his hands. We see an everlasting father crying out in anguish. We see a prince of peace torn apart by the hands of hate, God was giving the greatest gift the world had ever seen for our grief, and it was himself. See, Jesus gave up himself for, for one day to end all grief. There's coming a day that Jesus speaks about when our future hope will be present reality. A day when God will wipe away every tear. A day when God will right every wrong. A day when God will restore every loss. A day when God will overcome every sin, every sorrow, every suffering. The victory that Jesus won is secure. It's secure. The victory of the cross is secure. It was once for all. And so we endure our grief grounded in this hope. As the apostle says, we grieve not as those without hope. We grieve with the fullness of hope in Christ. God who gave himself for our grief.
God with us. I mean, I don't know what you're walking through today and, and what that process has been for you, where, where you are as you're feeling that loss. But, but this is what God is saying to us in the text. He's saying, wherever you find yourself, I, I want to move towards you and be there with you. I want to walk with you in the darkness and I want to shine light where, wherever light can be and, and I want to be present as you feel that pain and as you process what, you, what you've experienced. I want to be with you. Jesus invites you. He says that. He says, whoever's feeling this kind of way, if you're heavy and burdened, come to me. Come to me. Because I've come to you. He says, you can bring your grief. You can bring your lament and, and process it in my presence. Because this is what I've come to bring. I've come to bring myself for you. Wherever you find yourself today, Jesus is inviting us to grieve with him as he gives us hope. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you as the man of sorrows, the one acquainted with grief. You came to feel. You came to experience death, loss, pain. You watched as your good friend Lazarus was dead in a grave and you wept. Lord, you felt the loss and the pain of your people turning their backs on you and you looked over Jerusalem and you just wept. And even today, you come up near to us and whatever we may be experiencing now, you, you see it, you hear it, you feel it. And I pray, Lord, that as we bring that into your presence, we would know that you are with us. Even now as we come to the table and we celebrate you dining with us, we, we are reminded once again, you're the God who comes to be near. You are Emmanuel. And so we give it to you, trusting you with all of our heart, all of our strength. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.